Happy midday, everybody. This is your lunchtime launch time podcast by SME Community Radio. As we are just a day and a half away from the launch of the all civilian crew of Inspiration 4. Liftoff is scheduled for Wednesday, September 15th at 8.02 p.m. The crew is ready. The last forecast that I have is a 70% chance of good weather for launch, and that was given on Sunday night and Monday. So things are looking positive. Look for live coverage on SME Community Radio in the afternoon for the feed from SpaceX and any other feeds that we can muster up. Keep watching our Facebook for the latest coverage as the countdown continues. The crew has finished a practice countdown. The engines have been test fired on the Falcon 9 rocket. So all systems appear to go. This is a once in a lifetime opportunity for civilians to really get into space. And our podcasts today are going to be focused on the mission. First up will be our Axios podcast, As It Happened. Second will be the specials by St. Jude's Children's Hospital for the mission. And third will be WIFE's podcast, Are We There Yet?, with a surprise news on the first civilian suborbital space flight by Sir Richard Branson. There was a mistake. We're going to learn about that. So sit back, get your favorite lunch, get your favorite beverage, and strap in for launch. This is SME Community Radio's third series of the podcast. Getting ready for launch of Inspiration 4, 8.02 p.m. Wednesday night. I think my first space memory was in first grade. Chris Zembrowski. It was 1986. I remember... They rolled in, you know, the TV cart, which, you know, as a kid my age, uh, you're rolling in a TV cart with a VCR attached, like, oh, man, it's going to be an awesome class day. Everybody was so excited to see the first teacher in space and watch Krista McAuliffe go up. This is the story of a high school teacher from New Hampshire who was chosen to be the very first private citizen in history to fly in space. This documentary was made in the lead up to the mission. Krista McAuliffe became a celebrity. This was meant to be the moment that signaled space was open to everyday, ordinary people who had the big dream to fly. This is also the story of thousands of America's children, children who already realize that their future is bound up with the future of space exploration. Space enthusiasm on the national level was waning by that point. And so school kids were actually a huge part of the audience for this mid-morning launch. We have main engine start. Four, three, two, one, and liftoff. Liftoff of the 25th Space Shuttle mission, and it has cleared the tower. But 73 seconds after launch, the Challenger broke apart. Obviously a major malfunction. I looked at the picture, and it was a moment completely frozen in time. Dan Molina was covering the launch for NBC. One of those rare things that happens very seldom in your life when the world stops 
and, and you know what the reality is, but cannot face it. Launch from the Cape. Let's go now to the uh, Houston uh, Space Center, the Johnson Space Center in Houston, and uh, correspondent Dan Molina. Dan, what information do you have? What can you tell us there? John, an absolutely numbing sight. It's very difficult to express anything at this point other than the information that we're getting from uh, from NASA. The, uh, the Challenger disaster and its fallout revealed major problems with management inside of NASA and contributed to the rise of private companies like SpaceX. Today, that rhetoric from the 1980s about regular people going to space is back again in how we talk about Inspiration4. Those parallels, at least subconsciously, seem to be on the minds of the crew members about to fly with this mission. Cyan Proctor brought it up. I was 15 years old and I watched it live. Because I was so young and, and had that experience um, and, and felt that amazing, like crushing loss, uh, uh, it will always be a part of me. Some people even bring up Challenger when they find out Inspiration4 will have an all-civilian crew. Jared Isaacman, Inspiration Force Commander. It's like there's just some some angry people in the world that just make some very uninformed and uneducated statements about, you know, well, last time we tried this, it didn't work out too well with reference to the Challenger. There were plenty of people on that spacecraft that were test pilots and military background that also died. I mean, you know, you could have some of the most famous accomplished astronauts in the world and they would have suffered the, the same fate on that. And the families of the crew also brought it up. I can't let my anxiety as a mother prevent her from living her best life. Haley Arsenault's mom, Colleen. I was young when the Challenger exploded. I don't think about the launch because when I do, I think about Krista McAuliffe's parents. The image of them that was on every news show their faces right after. I do have a lot of faith in the engineers and the technicians and the brilliant people who have gone and, and, and made these technologies possible. And even 35 years later, experts in the space industry still have Challenger on their minds. Like Wayne Hale. He worked at NASA during the Challenger disaster. One of the things I don't think happened in the early days of NASA spaceflight is there wasn't enough attention paid to the families of the crew members and explaining it to them. And, and I, I, if, if, if you were going to sign up to go on one of these missions, you need to be prepared to sit down and have some hard discussions with the significant others in your life and explain to them why, if things don't turn out well, it was still worth the risk. And if you're not capable or willing to have that kind of discussion, you shouldn't go, period. Risk is baked into the private spaceflight industry, and spacecraft aren't regulated for the safety of, as the FAA calls them, spaceflight participants. Companies like SpaceX have to inform people flying with them of the risks, but those individuals ultimately assume that risk. If Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos, and others want to bring about a future for humanity in space, Realistically, some of the people who will be sent out to build that future will not survive to see it. I'll be very blunt. Uh, people are going to die, okay? And if you don't think that can happen, then you don't understand with the nature of the business. SpaceX worries about risk, too. 
Benji Reed, director of human spaceflight. There's always, it must go right, every mission, no matter what you're launching, but you put people on, it's, it's this different have-to-go-right feeling. Before Inspiration4 flies, there's another kind of preparation the crew has to complete. They have to prepare their families for the possibility, however slight, that the worst could happen. You'll hear from the crew in their own words about how they're preparing their loved ones for their mission. And I'll take you to one of their last training events in Bozeman, Montana, where the crew and their families celebrated the upcoming launch and confronted the reality of its approach. I'm Miriam Kramer. From Axios, this is How It Happened, The Next Astronauts. Part four, risk. No matter who you are, if you fly to space, you're leaving people you love and care for behind. But for parents of young children, the challenge of preparing loved ones before a mission is particularly profound. I talked with my husband, Ryan, I call him Rye, about what it would have been like if he was a crew member on Inspiration4. He entered that same raffle Chris won. I'm really trying to sit with the idea of leaving our kid and trying to really ask myself if I could do that. We were chatting about the mission one night after putting our toddler to bed. Over the months, as I spoke to Chris and Jared, who are both fathers of young kids, I kept thinking about what it would have meant for our family if Rye had won the contest. I take being a father really seriously. When my kids look back on their dad's life, does it matter more to them that I made a decision to stay Or is it inspiring that, you know, that they have a family member that goes into space? I mean, it's all, it's all totally just fantasy because at the end of the day, I didn't win. And to be honest, I'm glad I don't have to make it. I mean, our life is simpler. I empathize with Chris and his wife, Erin. In fact, I brought that up with both of them. So, my husband uh, entered the lottery as well. Oh, did he? <laughs> yeah. so, did your husband actually tell you he entered the lottery? Because <laughs> mine didn't. Yours did not. If you know Chris, you know what a space nerd he is. So, if there's a contest to go into outer space, yeah, he's going to sign up for it. <laughs> did we think he would win? Absolutely not. And he didn't, right? He would have been your seat if he had been chosen, basically. Yeah, imagine he sneaks around the corner and says, hey, you know that competition I entered during, during the Super Bowl? Well, looks like <laughs> I won. This wasn't a hypothetical for Chris. It's actually what happened after the Zoom call ended when he found out he won the seat. He and his wife, Erin, have two young daughters. I just walked up the stairs slowly to where my wife and daughters were, and I think my eyes were as big as saucers, and so I peek my head in the door and step in and said, hey, um, so um, I think I'm going to ride a rocket. And my oldest daughter says, what, Dad? Really? That's cool. And my wife says, what? And then you, you can start to see that, okay, we need to go have another conversation because there's a lot of emotions behind those eyes. And so I just paused for a moment because my girls were there too. I don't want 
them to feel upset about anything that we're going through. Because if mom's upset, they get nervous and anxious, right? So I just looked at her and I told her, I see you. And we went off and had a conversation. They plop the girls in front of screens and go into their walk-in closet to have the first of what will be many serious conversations about what it would mean, what it will mean for Chris to go to space. A lot of it, you know, we want to keep more so private because it's a lot of those things come up that really drive a lot of deep emotions. And some of those things we're probably still working through because, you know, we're not really going to be able to fully celebrate all this together until splashdown. And that's when, you know, that cathartic release of, okay, we made it through all that. He's back. And then my wife and I can celebrate together. Challenger was Chris's first space memory, but he went on to make a lot more. He launched model rockets and was a counselor at space camp, and he ultimately joined the Air Force. Chris was stationed in Montana. That's where he first met Aaron at a barbecue. I rolled up and with some of my friends, and, uh, you know, the way she talks about it, I'm wearing one of my old space camp T-shirts tucked into my faded tapered jeans, as she says. And, you know, I had the best of fashion sense at the time, I'm sure. And uh, the first thing out of my mouth when I'm introducing myself or saying hi to you, hey, did you guys, did you guys see the space shuttle launch today? Talk about the worst pickup lines of all time. <laughs> okay, nerd alert, here he is. But I mean, look at me, what a sucker, it worked, right? <laughs> the, whatever, we, we got to know each other more later. Chris was deployed to Iraq early in their relationship. The way we stayed in contact was through, um, you know, I would write letter after letter, um, pen and paper, because that I had time. And, uh, you know, when you're over there late at night in, in your tent in Iraq, then what else are you going to do but stay out of trouble? And so I was writing letters, and uh, that meant a lot to her. And uh, it was, I look back on some of them now, we've got some saved, and I uh, was like, man, I, I was pretty smooth back then. I'm a pretty good, eloquent writer, so I need to remember some of those skills during this mission. And Chris is drawing on what he experienced during his service, and he's writing letters for his family. It's part of grappling with the risk of this mission. But some are only meant to be read in a worst-case scenario. No one wants to write these kinds of letters or think about it, but it's like things you write to not just to my wife, but to my girls, you know, in case something does go wrong that they should never, ever see, they should never, ever read. But I write them and I hand them to a trusted individual in, in the one severe bad day case. Some, though, are for the best case scenario. The one I'm looking forward to writing the most is the one that I write while I'm on, on orbit. That's the one I expect to really kind of bring that connection uh, of taking her up there with me up in space. Chris isn't the only father of young kids flying aboard this mission. After the break, Jared's wife and kids prepare for his mission and the final training event he planned for the cruise families. Better connectivity benefits the greater good. That's why Qualcomm invented many of the important 5G breakthroughs to help take on some of the world's biggest challenges. Find out more about the power of 5G at qualcomm.com slash join us. We're back. Jared has two daughters. They're old enough to start asking questions about what he's doing. But they aren't 
all tough questions. It's all Baby Yoda, seriously. I'm like, if you're going to keep talking about Baby Yoda, then you have to watch Star Wars. So, like, if you keep this up, we're going to start watching some movies. Baby Yoda, as I'm sure you know, is a much-memed, adorable character from Star Wars. His daughters are obsessed. It's just this one character. What are they, I mean, are they saying, like, are you bringing a Baby Yoda with you? Or are you, you going like... to see one? Or is he going to be up there? Are you going to bring one back? So, Jared would like probably joke around that like they only see you know the funny sides of things like baby yoda and star wars monica jared's wife they've been together since they were teenagers they understand a lot more than what they're telling him and they know that he's away a lot now training so it's hard like i try to tell him like you know daddy's trying to train because he wants to be safe and, and they get it She understands more than anyone how important this mission is to Jared, but also how delicate these conversations with their daughters can be. I was actually in the car maybe a few weeks ago with both my girls, and I asked my seven-year-old, I asked her, do you know what daddy's doing? Yeah, he's going up to space. I'm like, what is he doing? Like, do you think, like, there's something more to this? And she, she actually did say, she's like, he's, he's helping kids and, like, helping other people. Monica is used to Jared taking on risk. He actually wrote a worst-case scenario letter seven years ago before flying a single-seat plane on a trip to circumnavigate the globe as another high-profile fundraiser. That was like, there's, you either make it or you don't. Like, there's no, even if you eject, you're going to die. And it was December in the North Atlantic. But this mission has been uniquely hard to confront. You know what it's like to ride in an airplane. So, like, if he's riding in a, in a fighter jet... You know he's going faster, but you know that feeling. Whereas, like, with, with space, it's a different fear because you just don't know what... Like, what is he supposed to control inside of it? What if something drops? Like, the risk is just... It's, we just don't understand it, I guess. Yeah. But, like, I'm nervous. Um, I, try to, I try to be supportive and, like, show that I'm excited for him. This is amazing for him. Like, he's wanted to do this for so long. But, like, for me, like, as his partner, like his wife, right? Like it just, it's a different sense. There is fear. I know he trusts SpaceX and like he spends more time with them. So he knows like how comfortable he is. But for me, it's like totally different. When I spoke to Jared this summer, he was taking his own approach to writing contingency letters this time around. I know I do have in my schedule this kind of um, weekend uh, escape to a little bit later in the summer where I'm planning to make sure all those kind of final thoughts are in order. So it's scheduled. He had to literally schedule writing these letters because Jared's a busy guy. He's commanding this mission and running a company and zigzagging across the country to train. I haven't given enough thought yet to what will be in there. But, you know, there's probably gonna be like two letters. There's one that everything, you know, is fine. We're on orbit and just like expressing like just let her know like everything's fine and appreciate all the support to make this moment happen and everything and and there's the one that you you know you hope that she doesn't have to open i still got to give some give some thought to it i was in bozeman montana in early august to watch the crew fly in fighter jets a favorite pastime of jared's it's an alaska airlines plane that's having to wait for 
the inspiration for a crew to take flight. Most of the weekend took place in an airplane hangar at the Bozeman Airport, a flat expanse framed by mountains. It was also one of the last moments for the crew's families to get together before launch. It's like sunset. It's gorgeous. The crew just loaded into fighter jets. Jared and Cyan are in one. Chris is being flown in another. Haley is being flown in a different one. In total, it's uh, five planes. There was a band. Yes, that's Rocket Man playing. It's a little on the nose, but the whole thing was a little on the nose. There was a production crew there making a documentary about the mission, and there was a photographer shooting glossy photos of the four crew members for Time magazine. If I had watched these four ordinary people become astronauts at SpaceX, on the tarmac in Bozeman, I felt like I was watching ordinary people become celebrities. They were suited up in flight suits, strutting down the runway, thronged by cameras and supporters. Here, here we go. Look here, look at them, look at the camera! Throw it out there, girl! But out of frame, the emotional core of the weekend was family. And watching the crew's families grapple with what was ahead for their loved ones. Take that one and put it in at a 45 degree angle. Push kind of hard. And there you go. And now you're clipping into there. Now you have your leg straps. As Chris Zembrowski was being strapped into a fighter jet. Probably loosen these up this. I had a chance to talk to his wife, Erin, on the tarmac about Inspiration 4. How are you feeling? Are you feeling like nervous at all or just excited? Like what emotion is, is the main one for you these days? All of it. Yeah. And it changes minute by minute and day by day, depending on where we are and what we're doing. And I think I feel all of it. I feel excited, proud, nervous, anxious, celebratory. I think that's normal when that's your partner. And that's, you know, my husband and the father to our children, and I need him back safe and sound, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think I'll really start celebrating when he's back on the ground. All right, I'm going to say yeah. say a little something to Please. him here. Cameras are around. Hey, Simbro. Yo. Yeah, fine. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be awesome. Be it is. I love you. Love you, too. All right, have fun. start getting out of the way I think we should start turning on the, the planes yeah let's not stand here yeah <laughs> Watching them transform into astronauts and celebrities, I wondered how going to space would change the Inspiration4 crew. Jared compared it to fatherhood. I don't, I, I don't know if it will in the same way that... But you know what else? I got this wrong about having a, a kid, too. And everybody's like, the moment you see the baby and it's born, like, your life is forever changed and your mindset's totally different. I was like, I'm still going to be me. And uh, no, like, you're, like, everything changes. And you're like, holy shit. Cyan was pensive. I keep thinking about that view back on Earth and how do I, I uh, capture the moment of looking out the cupola and uh, as a geoscientist, as an artist, a uh, poet, and all I know 
is that I will be changed. I just can't describe at this moment what that means. Cyan isn't planning to write a letter to her family or friends. She's doing something else. I came to the conclusion that the way I could best express myself was through a series of poems. And I think that that's probably the best thing for me to leave behind uh, if something were to happen. And she read me a draft. It's called Reflections in the Dragon's Eye. I hear your words, but they are not reality. Everything has yes, I surrender to the light, screaming ancestral oaths, free at last, free at last. Death of perception with big bang clarity. Shackled existence across the expanse weeps. I see the dragon's eye through smoke and smoldering ash, taunting possibilities. Don't look away. It's all I've ever wanted. Don't look away. Is it real? We'll be back in a few weeks with our season finale. The Inspiration4 mission is currently scheduled for launch from Cape Canaveral, Florida on September 15th, with Splashdown scheduled for three days later. We'll see you on the other side. the next astronauts is reported and produced by amy padula naomi shaven alice wilder and me dan bobkoff is our executive producer mixing sound design and music supervision by alex sugiera original music by michael hamph fact checking and research by jacob knutson allison snyder is a managing editor and my editor at axios and sarah kahalani goo is our executive editor Special thanks to Axios co-founders Mike Allen, Jim Vandehei, and Roy And Schwartz. a very special thanks to my husband, Ryan, for not only being in this episode, but also doing the vast majority of childcare while we finished this podcast. I'm Miriam Kramer. Thanks for listening. Better connectivity benefits the greater good. That's why at Qualcomm, we invented 5G breakthroughs that help address some of society's greatest challenges. Why it's important? The power of 5G can provide greater connectivity to industries like education and telemedicine, helping to make remote education more accessible and enabling personalized care. Learn how 5G is connecting the world at qualcomm.com slash join us. Imagine a basketball arena a little more than half full. It's about 12,000 people, and they might be there for a game or a concert. If it were NASA, they'd be asking to become astronauts. 12,000. That's how many applications the agency got in 2020. From people who are confident they meet a high bar. Training in a STEM field. Experience piloting jets. You have to pass a physical have to be a U.S. citizen. All those thousands of people who meet that high bar and apply and don't become astronauts, 
there's thousands more who want to go to space, but don't even bother applying because they don't meet the requirements. We are at the dawn of a new space age. More than tourism, private companies are laying the groundwork to open space exploration. We are writing the narrative of human spaceflight right now. And what do we want that to look like? How do we make space really for everyone? The first step in that journey is coming soon, when the first all-civilian orbital mission launches, carrying four people and a message of unity. There are no lines on the Earth. There are no walls. We are all here together. The Inspiration4 mission also aims to raise $200 million for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital to deliver on a promise made 60 years ago that no child should die in the dawn of life. The world has to benefit in an extraordinary way because for as much as we'd like to conquer and, and drive progress in space, you can't ignore the problems of the world we live in today. Where there is progress, there is hope. And with hope, comes a belief in the future. These kids are saying, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. They're seeing that they can grow up and that not only can they have a future, but it can be full of accomplished dreams. Hear the story of Haley Arsenault and the Inspiration4 mission by subscribing to St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime, wherever you get your podcasts. I want to tell you about two dates in 1962. The first is February 4th. That's when Danny Thomas opened the doors of St. Jude Children's Research Hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. The other date is February 20th. That's when John Glenn became the first American to orbit the Earth. He went around three times. It took about five hours. Those things happened nearly 60 years ago, and they were groundbreaking. But there have been tons of advancements since then, both in space exploration and pediatric cancer research. Enough advancements in both that someone whose life was saved at St. Jude is about to go where John Glenn went, a pediatric cancer survivor in space. That has never happened before, never even come close. Her name is Haley Arsenault and she and her fellow crew members will be going around the Earth way more than three times, every 90 minutes for three days. I'm Jeffrey Reddick. I make podcasts for St. Jude Inspire. And right now on this first episode of St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime, we're going to hear all about Inspiration4, how it came to be, what its goals are, and most importantly, the four people who are going to be in that space capsule when it launches. Stay with us. Twenty twenty one has been a busy year for space exploration. NASA landed its fifth rover on Mars in February. That's Perseverance. Curiosity, the fourth one, is also still wandering the red planet. And in May, they got company from a rover launched by China. But those are robots, and people tend to get excited about well, people. Over the summer, the private companies Virgin Galactic and Blue Origin flew their owners up like just over the space border. Another private company, SpaceX, has been launching astronauts to the International Space Station since 2020. 
And soon, they'll send four civilians farther than the space station. And that's what we're here to talk about. Let me bring in my colleague, Anna Berkedahl. She works on the video team that tells stories of St. Jude patients and supporters. Hi, Anna. Thanks for being here. Oh, Jeffrey, thank you. I'm so glad we get to tell this story together. So the Inspiration4 mission got announced in February. What did you think when you first heard about it? Well, it was kind of a combination of thinking about many things and really not knowing what to think at all. I mean, of course, the notion of an all-civilian mission to space that had the potential to raise $200 million for St. Jude Children's Research Hospital was incredibly exciting. Mm. And then there was a bit of a lull in the information coming through. But shortly after, we learned that a St. Jude employee would be one of the crew members. And well, that just took it to the next level. But I have to admit, I quickly began to wonder... What does this space mission in St. Jude have in common? Because as a storyteller, I knew what was ahead for me. I would need to find that connection to tell this story. So as I began to talk to some of the key people involved, it started to become clear. I personally think the common denominator is the need for progress in science and humanity. Hmm. There are two missions here, obviously, finding cures for pediatric cancer and then opening up space travel to all. And the goal of both really is to advance scientific research. So accomplishing what many would consider impossible and to offer inclusivity to all. And to also shine a light in a world that, you know, let's face it, after the last year or so can sometimes feel pretty dark. Yeah. Well, I, I know that you've had a chance to talk to each of the four crew members. Tell me a little bit about them. We've got a very diverse crew that shares a passion for adventure. So Jared Isaacman is the mission's commander. He's a pilot and a businessman. He's the founder of the payment processing solutions company, Shift4 Payments. He gifted this mission to benefit St. Jude. Dr. Cyan Proctor is a geoscience professor by profession, but she's also an artist at heart. Chris Sembrowski is an Air Force veteran who works in aerospace manufacturing. Also, Haley Arsenault, she's a childhood cancer survivor. We're going to talk about Haley throughout our next episode, but right now I want to dig into the bios of her crew members a little bit. And, and let's start with Dr. Proctor. I read that she's been an analog astronaut. What is that? I had never heard about that before now. Uh, Analog astronauts agree to live in simulated environments on Earth that mimic life at a base on the moon or Mars. And while they're there, they conduct research. These are full-on habitats that recreate extreme space environments. And it makes sense, right? You have to practice for this sort of thing before you just, you know, pull up to Mars, right? (laughs) So Dr. Cyan Proctor was a self-proclaimed explorer as a child, and she's really spent the rest of her life fulfilling that proclamation. She's now a geoscience professor who, on the side, has been living in those simulated space environments and conducting experiments to test and learn for the real thing. Wow. She was also part of the first Hawaii Space Exploration Analog and Simulation, or High Seas. That was in 2013. They were set up at a volcano on the island of Hawaii, the big island. She has a special interest in food in space, which is really critical for long-term missions. And some of her missions like this have lasted as long as four months. Space exploration is extremely important because solving for space solves for Earth. 
it makes us more efficient because space is all about efficiency in energy, in water, in food, in all of the systems. Because if you're not efficient, then you can um, you can die in space. But that efficiency level that we try to achieve, whether it's in space or on the moon or Mars in the future, that all that technology and stuff gets developed here on Earth. And then it comes back and helps us become more efficient here so that we're not only just surviving, we're thriving. Wow. Okay. So four months, that's a long time. Uh, But a flight to Mars would be even longer. That's like seven months. And then once you get there, you still have to put up with your crewmates. I mean, group dynamics is a huge deal. It absolutely is. Can you imagine? And yet Proctor and so many others want space exploration to be for everyone. She believes we need to actively strive for what she calls a JEDI space. It's her acronym. It stands for a just, equitable, diverse, and inclusive space as we advance human spaceflight. And so this is a message about how we are writing the narrative of human spaceflight right now as we go to the moon and we go on to Mars. And what do we want that to look like? Um, How do we make space really for everyone, you know, bring all of humanity along. And Inspiration4 is the perfect example of this. You can tell that she spent a lot of her life thinking about space exploration as a whole and like not just the technical side. Right. And and also getting there. Um, she's actually tried the traditional route and she came very close. In 2009, she was a finalist with the NASA astronaut selection process. And you get that phone call and it's no. And you're just like, oh, you know, you just feel it slip through your fingers. And then now that it's 12 years later and I'm that much older and wiser um, to get this call and it be a yes is like, it's everything I feel like I've been working towards my entire life as an explorer, as a geoscientist, as uh, an analog astronaut. It's all coming together. And spaceflight actually runs in her family. Proctor was born on the island of Guam because that was when her father was working at the NASA tracking station during the Apollo missions in the late 60s through 1970. Oh, wow. Yeah. So when she was 19, her dad passed away of cancer, Mm. and she was determined to continue his legacy of advancing human spaceflight. So she's been all over the world, but she's never left the planet until now. Hmm. Wow. So, that, I mean, that, that focus on space exploration, is that how she ended up with a seat on Inspiration4? No, actually. It was her artwork. When her mother passed away two years ago, um, Cyan found a box filled with postcards that she had been sending her mother over the course of 30 years. What she didn't know was that her mother had saved every one of them. That inspired her to design her own postcards with what she calls space art. And as part of the Inspiration4 contest she developed a plan to sell her postcards. A little backstory, when Jared Isaacman was dreaming up the mission and developing this contest, he was aiming to get people in the capsule who could represent what he calls four pillars of humanity. Proctor's contest submission was that business plan to open an online store to sell her artwork using Shift for Shop, which is Shift for's e-commerce platform. So Proctor will sit in the prosperity seat on the Inspiration4 mission. Okay, so her artwork is inspired by space, and then she, she's she been able to sort of activate it through this contest to get into the Inspiration4 seat. Yes, and the timing was perfect because she was making these space art postcards 
And people were asking, how do I get these? And she really had no way of, of getting them out there. And so the timing was really great for her. It was something she was probably going to do anyway, but this really motivated her to advance the plan. This this is a Renaissance woman. It, totally. I, I mean, I don't know what her plans are after Inspiration 4, but I really hope more people get to know Dr. Cyan Proctor. She is incredibly motivating. She's very charismatic and wise. Hmm. So you, you mentioned prosperity. Um as, as one of the seats on Inspiration4, what are the other seats? Well, these four pillars of humanity, these core pillars that have named the seats, there's leadership, that's the seat Jared is in, and there's hope, that's Haley's seat, and there's generosity, that's Chris's seat. Chris Sombrowski. Right. So how does he represent generosity? Well, Chris heard about the possibility of winning a seat on Inspiration4 when he saw an ad about it during the 2020 Super Bowl. So he got online and made a donation to St. Jude. What happened after that was his friend who attended college with Sembrowski actually won the chance, but he decided against going, and that's how Chris ended up getting the phone call. Chris says he's been the recipient of a lot of generosity in his life, and he now wants to pay that forward. Oh, man, what was that like to get that call? I mean, I don't know if Chris was in shock, but he says when he got the call, his wife was upstairs getting their daughter ready for school. He was actually pretty low key when he let his wife know who was on the other end of that phone call. I told her, I think you're going to ride a rocket. She said, what? My daughter's there. She said, that's amazing. That's cool, Dad. And so well, it's, a, it's just an overwhelming experience to feel. And I had no idea that this was ever a possibility. And now that it is, I am super excited at the chance. So you said a few minutes ago that Chris works in the aerospace industry. Uh, so he has some training in rockets, I guess. He does. Training and passion that goes way back. So when most kids were playing with G.I. Joe... Chris was building model rockets with his dad. And then in college, he worked on high-powered model rocketry. And then he served in the U.S. Air Force, maintaining our nation's fleet of Minuteman III intercontinental ballistic missiles in Montana. And then there was this important moment. Once you see your very first live, real-size rocket launched to space, there really are very few other experiences like that for me that give you goosebumps that really just kind of change who you are as a person in a way. I I sort of understand a little of what he's saying there. I, I saw a nighttime launch of the space shuttle once, and it was indescribable. Um, video of those kinds of things just, it doesn't do the event justice. Right. And being on one of those rockets was a dream Chris abandoned a long time ago. He talks about how difficult it is to get accepted into a traditional space program. There are more people in Congress than Americans who have been to space. And he says that's just not the way it should be. I'm hearing some parallels to Dr. Proctor there with, with that feeling. The idea of uh, you know solving for space solves for Earth and making space exploration more inclusive for everyone. Absolute parallels. Chris has actually been part of a grassroots effort to promote legislation in Washington, D.C. to help open the frontier so that companies like SpaceX could exist. And part of that means making it affordable to be in the business of spaceflight. SpaceX has been developing technologies for years now to make space launch vehicles reusable. That's so important for cost efficiency, bringing those costs down. And it'll help make space travel more widely available. And Chris says the reason to do that is that space exploration sends a message of unity. 
when you look at Earth from above, you really get a good sense of what it's like to be a part of this precious thing we call Earth. And I know that experience is going to be incredible for me. And I hope to bring that message back, understanding that there are no lines on the Earth. There are no walls. We are all here together. We can all do amazing things if we show a little generosity and kindness towards one another. Hmm. Okay, so let's talk about the person who's going to make that perspective possible for Chris. Jared Isaacman, um, he came up with the idea for Inspiration4. This is a successful entrepreneur. He's a generous philanthropist, but he doesn't really grab headlines. Uh, I mean, not until now with this mission. Right. And I'm going to just confess publicly right now to my <laughs> unconscious bias about billionaires. I haven't met a lot of billionaires. Okay, I haven't met any billionaires. <laughs> but when I was getting ready to interview him for the first time, I defaulted to the stereotype of an eccentric and maybe even out of touch or aloof human. Yeah. I mean, Howard Hughes, billionaire, aviator, right? right? I, <laughs> my point of reference went right there. So I was really taken back by Isaacman's humility, his just truly down-to-earth vibe. Um, that realness, that was almost more intimidating because it caught me off guard than if he'd been what I expected. My palms were sweaty. I had to kind of rethink everything in the moment. <laughs> uh, so I, I know that you also talked to two of his brothers. Um, I mean, what did they have to say about him as a person? I, I feel like siblings... Those are the people who are going to know you best and know if that uh, humility is is real or not. That's true. And his brothers, they're both older, but they say he's always had a deep sense of empathy for the challenges other people experience, even as, as a little kid, and that he's always been hardwired to be incredibly ambitious. So Jared started the company that became Shift4 Payments when he was 16. His brothers must have been around for that. He actually developed the concept for Shift 4 in his parents' basement. <laughs> I I don't know about you, but at 16, I was more focused on getting a driver's license and what to wear to prom. <laughs> um, but we didn't have a basement. So, you know, that might be where things went wrong. I'm, I'm going to go with that. <laughs> yeah, there you go. <laughs> anyway, Jared was so confident in the idea, he decided he should drop out of high school and uh, that, that raised a little buzz among the family members. And that's when his brother, Mark, got a call from their parents. And Mark, will you please call him and have a conversation and convince him to go back to high school? So, uh, of course, I reached out to Jared and uh, had a conversation. And, um, you know, he's very convincing. Uh, on, at 16, he was very convincing. The company, which was actually under another name at the time, took off so quickly that there wasn't a lot of time to push back, they say. Hmm. And Jared eventually got his GED and a college degree later on. But, but dropping out of high school to start a business, going to space... Is, is he a risk taker? I really think that depends uh, on how you define risk, Jeffrey. I mean, I define risk as uh, drinking milk on the expiration date. So it's different <laughs> with everyone. And you've got to realize Jared has a lot of aviation experience. He went from light jets to military trainers and started a private air force to provide top gun training with fighter jets. Mm. He's flown jets around the world. He's broken world records doing so. He would say, no, he's not a risk taker. He calculates everything. And he'd say these are great challenges that he takes on very carefully. 
I don't want bad things to happen. There are many, you know, adventurous things in life that I've specifically avoided. I, you know, I don't, I don't go uh, skydiving. I don't fly helicopters. I don't think I'd be a good helicopter pilot. Um, but the things that do draw my attention that I think I can, you know, I can conquer. Um, I spend a lot of time uh, studying and practicing to make sure that I can, you know accomplish my objectives uh, and fulfill that challenge in a, in a safe way. And I'm, I'm trying to bring the same thought, training, and preparation to what we're doing with this uh, mission ahead. So Jared is the commander of this mission, and, and he's had a say in who gets chosen and how they come together as a team. I mean, they were all strangers. Yeah, until earlier this year, they had never met. And they've been going through rigorous training together now. They've also climbed Mount Rainier in Washington State. That was not so much mission training, but more of a bonding exercise, which I'm told is a tradition among space travelers and a tradition that goes back many years. And while they all share a fascination for space travel, they really do all bring a different set of skills to the mission. So how did Jared connect this mission to space with St. Jude? He's actually done a lot of charity work um, connected to causes that directly benefit children. But he says Inspiration4 was going to be on such a grand scale, especially as it relates to the fundraising component of the mission. And he says he couldn't think of any other organization he wanted to support more than St. Jude. Benefiting an organization like St. Jude that gives others the opportunity to grow up and enjoy some of those you know, great challenges in life is paramount. Um, so I think it all kind of gets woven together. Like, yes, you should take advantage of every minute of this. And while you're doing it, especially if it's something that's out of the ordinary or exceptionally challenging, then make sure that the cause you're serving is greater than yourself. So it sounds like this isn't just about the chance to go to space for him. Right. It's, it's not just about the chance. It's not really even about being the first to conduct a mission the way he's conducting this one. It's about sending an inspiring message about driving progress in space as well as here on Earth. The world has to benefit in an extraordinary way because, you know, uh, for as much as we'd like to, to conquer and, and, and drive progress in, in space, you can't ignore the problems uh, of the world we live in today. He says he's thinking about the message he wants to send to the world with this mission. And that goes back to those core pillars of humanity. Yeah. Yeah, but it... It is also about the chance to go to space, uh, you know, and the implications that in the future, just about anybody could go to space. He's put a lot of thought into that. And, and he says the world's going to be a more interesting place when we can all explore amongst the stars and seek out the answers to some of life's greatest questions. I think a lot of us, you know, whether you're a Star Trek fan or a Star Wars fan, like imagine a world where we all kind of are, um, you know, cruising around amongst the stars and exploring other planets and answering life's mysteries and such. So the more that everyday people can participate in that, I think it's a more interesting world. They're just going about doing their lives and now they're going to have this amazing opportunity and it will be the first step of hopefully many, many more to come. The first of many. Well, we have one more crew member to tell you about, and that's Haley Arsenault. These kids are, you know, they're saying, I want to be an astronaut when I grow up. They're seeing that they can grow up and that not only can they have a future, but it can be full of accomplished dreams. We'll talk about her in our next episode. Thank you, Anna. Thank you, Jeffrey. St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime is a production of St. Jude Inspired. We have reporting from Anna Burkadal. We're edited by Grace Corzequa Evans. Lewis Graham is the executive producer. 
You can find more about the Inspiration4 mission online at stjude.org inspire. That's also where you can make a donation to St. Jude. We're also on social media. Just search for St. Jude. Be sure to subscribe to St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime so you can hear our next episode. And thanks for joining us. I'm Jeffrey Reddick. Hello and welcome to the second episode of St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime. You can find the first episode wherever you get your podcasts and online at stjude.org inspire. In that first episode, we talked about how the Inspiration4 mission came to be and introduced you to three of the crew members, including the commander, Jared Isaacman. He's also the benefactor. He made this trip to space possible. So if you need to get caught up, Pause this now and listen to that episode, and we'll see you back here in a few minutes. I'm Jeffrey Reddick, and I make podcasts for St. Jude Inspire. This is St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime. The four people on the Inspiration4 mission represent four pillars of humanity, prosperity, generosity, leadership, and then there's hope. My name is Haley, and whenever I was a little girl, I was 10 years old, and I was a patient here. I had cancer, and so I had to go through the chemotherapy, and I had to have surgery. How old are you guys? Five. Five. Eight. Eight. Quantos años tiene Seven. Okay, so I was a little bit older than you guys because I was 10. But um, now I'm also an astronaut. That's Haley Arsenault. She survived bone cancer as a child. She was treated at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. And now she works there as a physician assistant. And soon she'll be the youngest American in space as part of the first all-civilian mission. Her story shows the kids she works with that there's a future for them that the disease they're fighting right now won't define their entire lives. And there's something else too. A childhood cancer survivor, someone with an internal prosthetic, has never been to space. So Haley's story also connects with other civilians who wouldn't qualify for government space programs with stringent requirements. Lots of ways to think about hope when it comes to Haley's story. We'll hear all about it coming up. Stay with us. I'm joined again by my colleague, Anna Berkadal. She works on the video team that tells stories of St. Jude patients and supporters. And she's interviewed all of the crew members on Inspiration4, plus some of Haley Arsenault's family members. Anna, thanks for talking with me today. Thank you, Jeffrey. I'm glad to be back. So I want to begin with a little bit of a larger picture. Haley's one of our colleagues. And people listening may not realize this, but there are actually many people who have been patients of St. Jude who later go on to work at the research hospital itself or at ALSAC, the fundraising and awareness organization that supports St. Jude. That's right. I work alongside many childhood cancer survivors who come back. They want to be able to join the mission that saved their lives and continue to move it forward. 
But, Jeffrey, I also work with parents whose children were treated here and did not survive. Mm. And I've asked many of them, why would you pursue a career at a place where you experienced some of your worst moments? Mm. And I think that speaks to the culture of care at St. Jude Children's Research Hospital. Some families have said they've experienced some of their best moments here, and they describe St. Jude as a sort of a utopia, even a model for humanity. Mm. And really, if the scientific progress that's happening here at St. Jude can spare other families from going through what they went through, they want to be a part of that. Well, even when she was a patient, Haley said that she wanted to raise money for St. Jude. And, you know, she's doing that now. That's that's one component of this mission. It's tied to a fundraising effort with a goal of $200 million. Um, what are the other connections? I think one of the big connections is that Haley exemplifies the importance of a positive attitude during cancer treatment. She went through hundreds of hours of physical therapy. You mentioned her prosthetic. That took a lot of time to get her leg back to where she could do things that most kids could do. Mm -hmm. Her oncologist told her mother that Haley's can-do spirit was going to be a key component of her recovery because recovery doesn't end when cancer retreats. St. Jude is doing extensive studies in an effort to minimize the side effects of cancer treatment, and that's so patients can go home and live their best life. But then the issue you mentioned earlier, encouraging patients to look to the future on their best and their worst days. Mm. It's very important to Haley that she can tell her patients and their parents, I know what you're going through. When I talked to her, she said that the inspiration for mission is tangible evidence that they can grow up and follow their dreams. This one family that came up to me, I'll never forget this. the mom came up and, and she was with a little girl and the mom started crying saying how much this mission meant to her daughter because it was giving her hope. And the little girl told me that that recently she's been discouraged because she can't run or jump. And I told her, you know, I can't run and jump either, but it's not stopping me from going to space. Wow. It, it's really moving to hear about the direct effect, you know, that caregivers have on their patients. Um I'm wondering, you know, if we can back up a little bit and give some broader context to Haley's story. I know that you've talked to many people who know her. Um, Did you talk with anybody who cared for her when she was a patient? Yes, some of those caregivers are still here. Uh, One is Elizabeth Barnwell. She's a nurse practitioner at St. Jude now. She was a nurse back then when Haley was a patient. So she's known her a long time. And she says from the beginning there was a special bond with Haley Haley always thanked the caregivers and seemed happy to see them. Hi, Lizzie. I'm so glad you're my nurse today. And she would say that to any provider. I'm so glad you're my nursing assistant today. It's so good to see you. I'm so thankful you'll be our doctor today. I mean, and her parents did the same thing. I think just everybody really wanted to take care of her, you know. Maybe I got a little lucky. (laughs) I can see how that would stick with you. You know, you might have this expectation that Patients would not be looking forward to seeing you, especially if the treatment was difficult or painful. There are days like that. Lizzie says there were days when Haley wasn't feeling well and she would send them out and say, I'm not up to this today. And they would leave her alone and let her rest. But on the good days, Lizzie says Haley lifted the spirits of not just the staff, but also the patients. She'd perk up and say, time for a dance party. And so she taught us all that, you know, we need to embrace having fun with these kids and and encourage them to do that. So I think she paid that forward with a lot of other patients. Hmm. 
So, so what did Nurse Barnwell think about Haley going to space? Well, like a lot of people uh, who heard the news, she had a hard time understanding it at first. Then it started to sink in, and she kind of went into a mama bear protective mode. Uh, you know, going back to looking at 10-year-old Haley, she started wondering if it was safe and how it would impact Haley's health. But then she was excited for her. Go, girl, go to space. <laughs> can you take pictures? And can we, can we text when you're up there? It does make you kind of want to go with her, you know. I said, is your mom going to just jump on that shuttle with you? (laughs) She said, I don't know, between the two of you, maybe. (laughs) We heard her mention Haley's mom there. You must have talked to her, too. Right. That's Colleen Arsenault, Haley's mom. She says that the summer before Haley was diagnosed with cancer, the whole family went to Houston, and they visited the Johnson Space Center. Her late husband was really into space exploration, and both the kids enjoyed the visit. Haley was 10 when she was diagnosed. She was an active kid, into everything her mom says, especially dance and martial arts. Hmm. How, how did they end up coming to St. Jude? Well, they're from Louisiana, near Baton Rouge, and that's where they first got the diagnosis. The pediatrician said she'd get in touch with their HMO to see about treatment, and that made Colleen very worried. The idea of what insurance may or may not pay in order to save your child's life is just unthinkable. Yeah. So her husband went online and found St. Jude. And once Haley's doctors referred her to St. Jude, they were quickly in Memphis working up a treatment plan. The doctor did talk to my HMO, and they were going to have her go to a hospital in New Orleans that is not a cancer hospital. And um, a week later, we were at St. Jude. She was already um, having her biopsy and having a central line in in preparation for chemotherapy. St. Jude moved very quickly. You and I know from talking to patients that the speed is reassuring, uh, but it can also feel overwhelming. And then that's just the beginning of the treatment. Right. She had several rounds of chemo, dozens of blood and platelet transfusions, and surgery. They had to remove part of her femur and replace it with an internal prosthetic that could expand as she grew. And there was special technology that allowed that then, that she could do that without having many, many surgeries. And eventually they replaced that with a permanent prosthetic. Colleen said it was hard to watch her daughter go through the treatment and really knowing there was no guarantee that Haley would pull through or what her quality of life would be like. When she left the hospital the first, right after treatment, she did have a very significant limp and um, because it was just so hard bending her leg. But she's really worked at that. And um, she was in physical therapy quite a long time. The last time she was in physical therapy, you know, a couple of times a week for two and a half years to get the functioning that she has now. I always get a little smile on my face when, when people find out that she did have cancer and they didn't know it. So we know how Haley first came to St. Jude and what she was like as a patient there. How did she end up working at St. Jude? Well, when she was younger, she spoke to donors and other people at fundraisers. And Colleen says she always wanted to work there eventually. She says Haley was drawn to the medical part, especially that direct patient care. And it's interesting, Colleen says she applied to be a physician assistant at St. Jude right after she got out of school, and she didn't get an interview. And she was devastated. But she took a job near our hometown, and um, 
as an emergency room PA and got incredible experience and um, paid off all her student loans and then, but she never forgot about her dream of working at St. Jude. Colleen says she applied a second time, got an interview, but didn't get hired. It turned out that the third time was the charm. She loves it. And she told me, Mom, I never could have done this job straight out of PA school. I mean, that story shows some real emotional resilience to, to not give up in that situation. It does, to keep trying. And it calls back to how she reacted to her cancer treatment. Yeah. Well, I know that you've spoken to Haley herself several times. Um, it's been a really, really busy year for her. How's she handling it? She says it's been the best year of her life, and she's been keeping a journal because she says she doesn't want to forget one moment of it. She's a naturally outgoing person, but she admits she might have been a little naive about the amount of media attention this would all bring. Yeah. I mean, think about it. Almost overnight, you're you're not just training for space. You're on the cover of Time. You're part of a Netflix documentary <laughs> and thrust into lots of TV appearances and hundreds of interviews. But she's getting more comfortable with that, with being on camera. Her mom says she was always comfortable being the center of attention as a kid. (laughs) And frankly, she's just a natural at public speaking, which I quickly figured out the first time we sat down together. You know, I understand why there's been so much focus on her. Uh, You know, even within the crew, she's unique. She's the only cancer survivor. She's the only person in the crew with an internal prosthetic. Um, and then I noticed this looking at the time cover. She's the only one with long hair. Right. And and down to every last detail, that's what you have to think about when you're doing something like going to space. And believe it or not, that the hair is a special challenge. There have been meetings about it. She's decided she's going to braid it for the launch and then she'll let it go in orbit. I want like the long hair to be standing up and the bangs are going to be like how I wake up in the morning, like standing straight up. It'll be so fun. And I think I need to do that whenever we call the St. Jude patients. Because then it'll be like, I'm actually in space, (laughs) y'all. The the kids are going to love that. They are. And that's what she's so excited about, really most excited about, the possibility of communicating with her patients from space. So while she's been getting ready for this mission, you know, over this past year, has she been able to interact with her patients? She has. And they've asked her some very interesting questions about the mission and have even given her advice about what to do if she encounters an alien. Um, They did tell me that aliens are great huggers. But they also said, if an alien follows me home, I need to put a sign in my pantry that says, aliens eat here. And then the alien will go eat in the pantry and then I'll close the door. And that will be the end of my problem. I was like, "Um, you've been thinking about this, clearly. (laughs) Because <laughs> it was a multi-step plan. That's a, a handy tip, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> yes. she's able to make those kind of connections in part because she knows exactly what her patients are going through and what their families are feeling, the comfort they experience being cared for at St. Jude. Mm. And she knows the relief they feel when they learn they will never get a bill from St. Jude for anything. Mm. Haley says St. Jude saved her entire family, not just the treatment, being free of the financial burden, too especially with the the technology that they had to save my leg. That was not cheap. And, you know, now that I'm a provider and I get to treat these patients without having to worry about what insurance will cover, is just so freeing. And it's the best thing to happen for these patient families. 
Tell me about the training that she's been doing this year. I mean, the she and the rest of the crew are all civilians, but I'm sure they have to prepare somehow. They do. And there have been many training missions spread out across the country. The crew's been through zero gravity training, centrifuge training, simulator training, water survival training, and then add on medical officer training for Haley. Hmm. It, just learning how to live in space, how to strap into the capsule how to strap into a sleeping bag before you go to sleep, how to eat, how to use the bathroom. And she says that's one of the first questions people ask her, how will you go to the bathroom? <laughs> right. I've I've seen pictures of her climbing Mount Rainier also. I mean, that's no joke. That, that's, a, that's a difficult climb. Almost 10 hours straight up in snow. There are photos of her with the whole left side of her hair is just frozen uh, no thank you from me. But Haley <laughs> says it made her realize that she was holding herself back. If somebody would have told me that morning that we would have been hiking for almost 10 hours, I would have just flat out said, I can't go. Like, I can't do that with my leg. But then I did it. And it went great. And then when I got to the top, I just had this moment where I was like, I was putting limits on myself that didn't need to be there. And there's another important message there she hopes this mission sends. She and her fellow crew members are regular people. They have not been training for this their whole lives. And she says, if we can do it, you can too. You know, something you notice about her, both from, you know, what she says and what others say about her, Haley is the kind of person that really adapts to uncertainty well. Well, new situations certainly don't throw her for a loop. I, I, I think she relishes that. This whole year is things I haven't experienced before, but I love that about this year. Like, this has already been the best year of my life, and I haven't even gone to space yet. I have to think that part of that ability comes from all that she's lived through. It does. It's not just her own cancer story. Uh, her father died of cancer as well, not very long ago, and he helped spark that love of space within her. She's going to bring one of his ties with her on the mission. This was kind of an inside joke between the two of us because he would wear it all the time. It's a St. Jude tie. And I would kind of like tease him like, Dad, don't wear that. Wear something like cool and trendy. And he would say, no, I want to wear it because then people ask me about St. Jude and I can tell him all about St. Jude. And so I think he would just absolutely love that I'm bringing his tie to space. Typical kid, right? Yeah. I should also say that her younger brother is an aerospace engineer who would love nothing more than to go to space. Huh. Imagine his surprise when he found out his sister was going. Their father's interest in space exploration, and then that trip to NASA stuck with both kids. Yeah. So, you know, in just a few days, Haley will be sitting in the capsule on top of a rocket on a launch pad. The doors closed, and all these months of anticipation and training are about to be over. What do you think she'll be feeling? I asked her that. She can't predict exactly what will be going through her mind. It's going to be about two hours after the, the door closes before we launch. And either those are going to be the longest two hours or the shortest two hours of my life. Probably both. But I think I'm just going to be feeling a bunch of gratitude that I'm sitting in that seat and that I'm getting to represent all these kids, other survivors, kids going through the trenches, going through treatment, and then the kids that aren't with us. I'm representing all these kids, and it's a huge honor. That's a lot to keep in mind. Thank you, Anna. Thank you. St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime is a production of St. Jude Inspire. 
We have reporting from Anna Burkadal, were edited by Grace Corziqua Evans. Lewis Graham is the executive producer. You can find the first episode of this podcast and more about the Inspiration4 mission online at stjude.org inspire. That's also where you can make a donation to St. Jude. And we're on social media. Just search for St. Jude. We'll be back with another episode once the Inspiration4 crew returns to Earth. Be sure to subscribe to St. Jude Mission of a Lifetime so you can hear what they experienced. And we just might have some bonus content for you between now and then. Thank you for joining us. I'm Jeffrey Reddick. The grounding of Virgin Galactic and documenting SpaceX's all-civilian mission. You're listening to Are We There Yet, the radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Virgin Galactic's founder, Richard Branson, flew to the edge of space and back in July, riding in his company's space tourism plane, Spaceship Two. The trip grabbed headlines and news coverage worldwide as the billionaire raced to beat another billionaire, Jeff Bezos, to the edge of space and back. Branson was welcomed back to Earth with fanfare, and it signaled the start of what could be a very lucrative market for private space tourism. But recent reporting from The New Yorker uncovered a perilous flight with the founder and prompted the FAA to ground the vehicle as it investigates the so-called mishap. We'll chat with The New Yorker writer Nicholas Schmidl about that perilous flight and what it reveals about the culture of safety and risk at Virgin Galactic. Then, another group of space tourists are set to take to the skies next week. SpaceX's Inspiration4 crew is slated to launch from Kennedy Space Center next Wednesday. The crew of four civilians have been training since earlier this year for the three-day mission, and photographer John Krauss has been there snapping photos of their journey. We'll talk with Krauss about the crew and the places they've gone as they train to fly to low Earth orbit next week. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's Space Station. A warning light from the cockpit of Richard Branson's Spaceship 2 turned amber, then red, a sign that the ship was heading off course. The pilots continued the flight and safely returned with Branson and the crew, but the mishap is unveiling a culture of risk at the space tourism company. The New Yorker's Nicholas Schmidl has been reporting on Virgin Galactic, and his most recent piece for the publication sheds light on this so-called mishap and the culture of safety and risk at Branson's space venture. He's also the author of Test Gods, Virgin Galactic, and the Making of a Modern Astronaut, and he joins us now. Nick, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. So the FAA has grounded... Virgin Galactic's spacecraft. Um, what do we know about the decision to do this? Why Why did the FAA make this decision? Uh, it's a good question. There, there are a lot of details that we don't know yet, but we'll, what, what we do know is that the July 11th flight that Richard Branson um, was on that, that uh, delivered him to the edge of space and that gave Virgin Galactic a very uh, important um, uh, victory in their sort of uh, their 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 space race with Blue Origin and their competition with Blue Origin for the suborbital tourism market. Uh, we know that the flight did not go as well as it initially appeared, or as the company has has so far um, sort of presented it as having gone. And as a result of that, or one of the one of the reasons that it didn't is that it also um, veered outside of the FAA's designated airspace and. So the FAA in a statement last Wednesday, we, we published a piece of the New Yorker that described, that got into the details of the flight, 
And on Thursday, the FAA issued a statement saying that they were grounding Virgin Galactic until further notice. Um, they actually used the words uh, mishap in their statement. Um, and so, uh, yeah, so that that's kind of what, what, what we know at the moment. We don't know... Um, uh, for whether this could be something that 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 the FAA comes back in a week, we don't know if this could be a you know a months long investigation. I, I I can't imagine it would be that long. I my sense is more that there were um, uh, that that they are going over procedural questions as to sort of how these things need to be reported. Um, you know when this was reported, why this was eventually reported, whether the FAA got wind of it. For, like you know there are a lot of questions there. I mean. It, it, that that remain unanswered, and, and it's, it is worth pointing out that the FAA also has a presence in the the mission control room. Now, those folks are doing, um, you know, they are monitoring a number of things. It, it, it's it's sort of unclear why they didn't even notice it in real time, but but it appears that they did not. Mm-hmm. And Nick, let's let's talk about some of those things that that you've reported in that piece for the New Yorker last week. Um, it, it reveals that this was quite a, a harrowing launch from from the cockpit, right? I mean, what were some of the issues that, that were uncovered? So the issues were a few fold, right? They, they, the pilots, uh, I mean, first and foremost, the pilots, they, they, they didn't get the nose of the spaceship sufficiently vertical. And, and when they, in early in the, in the burn early during the, the boost fate portion of the flight, when they didn't get the nose sufficiently vertical later on in the flight, about three quarters of the way in, they, they got what is called a, an entry glide cone caution. And an entry glide cone, the entry glide cone is the sort of imaginary, it, it's the window in, it's, it's where Virgin Galactic sort of needs to be in terms of its orientation vis-a-vis uh, the runway and its altitude, etc., to make it back to the runway safely. And, and that kind of this bears a little bit of explanation, which is that, you know, unlike the, the other um, uh, leading rocket companies at this point, SpaceX, Blue Origin, et cetera, who, who use a vertical takeoff, and, and in the case of those two companies, a vertical landing system, uh, Vir, uh, Virgin Galactic uses an air launch system. And so when their mothership tows the spaceship up to altitude of about 45,000 feet and then drops the spaceship, and then the spaceship uh, ignites the rocket and flies horizontally for a few seconds before entering this very steep uh, vertical ascent, um, it uses rocket power to get to space, but it uses glide energy to to return to the runway. And and if if you are, let's give an example. Like if you uh, are skiing, uh, snow skiing, and you um, are off, you, you you sort of veer off of the uh, you know you veer off of the path, and suddenly you find yourself you know a half a mile from where the lift is at the base. You know, you've got to then pull your way back to the lift, right? And so, in this case, if Virgin Galactic, if the spaceship is not sort of in a in the proper corridor, it is not going to make it back to the runway uh, with with the the amount of glide energy that it has. And so, what happens is that they they got the entry glide cone caution, and that's there that that inside the cockpit is is you know it comes up as a yellow light, a, a, a sort of an auburn yellow light, and that's telling the pilots they need to do something. They need to change the the, the orientation of the vehicle. They need to get the nose up, and um, a few seconds passed. They did not get the nose sufficiently up, and then they got an entry glide a red entry glide cone uh, warning. And at this point, there are about five seven seconds left in the rocket burn and they really sort of have two choices by the pilot protocols one of which is to to make it very clear 
uh, for the pilot to make it very clear to the co-pilot and for ever to be evident to those sort of watching that they are taking significant measures to correct the the orientation of the ship or is, is to abort the rocket motor now this is this is the question right that that uh, we don't that we, we still don't know we don't know they, they did not abort the rocket motor we don't know if they didn't abort the rocket motor because they the pilots were convinced that they were doing enough uh, to to main to stay within that that entry glide cone corridor or whether there was some you know spoken or unspoken pressure to get the the boss in the back into space to, to beat Jeff Bezos but nonetheless they they ignored that um, that uh, or they they did not heed the most uh, the abort option, and uh, so yeah, so you know that was that, that those that those was the that was the dynamic inside, and and the concern is that if you if you don't that if you fall outside of that entry glide cone, that you are going to potentially have to you know have an emergency landing in the dirt, and uh, that's that's not what you want to do if you have Richard Branson and or any other sort of paying customer sitting in the back of the of the vehicle. I mean, Virgin Galactic has had a history of issues with its uh, flight testing and and its rocket. There's been a casualty in, in 2014. Um, in 2011, there was a crash. Uh, but in this piece, you write that, that these recent episodes are, are, are more revealing to the culture at Virgin Galactic. I mean, what happened in that cockpit? Is, is this an isolated incident of Virgin Galactic taking unnecessary risks? Or is this kind of a, a show of the culture as a whole at Virgin Galactic? Well, that's a great question. I mean, I, I think it, it bears some mentioning that, you know, I, I spent four years embedded with the company, uh, initially for a, a, a long magazine piece for The New Yorker, and that, then um, the reporting I then used, as well as some additional reporting for, for this book that came out in May, Test Gods. Um, the... So in 2011, you mentioned there was there 2011 there was a, a near accident uh, that in which the test pilot managed to save the ship. But in 2007, there was a uh, there was a rocket uh, there was a, an accident involving the propulsion system on the ground in which three engineers were killed. And then in 2014, there was the uh, there was the the, the mid air breakup in which one test pilot was killed. So I, the time that I spent inside the company never it never it never felt it never felt reckless, right? It, it, this is not a company that is, that is, um, this is not a company that I, the company that I witnessed is not a company that is sort of cowboy-like, but there is a palpable tension between the realities of a supersonic flight test program and, and, and the, the uh, accompanying risks and the ambitions of a luxury tour brand that is intent on catering to the rich and famous. And Virgin Galactic very much wants to be the latter, but it is still squarely in the former, right? It is still, it, it, it wants to be an established brand, but it is still very much an experimental flight test program. And so the, so, so you mentioned those two episodes. The ones, what I see is that there was an there was a there was an incident in 2018 in July of 2018, and then there was another in February of 2019. Both of which um, involved the first the July of 2018. The two pilots went to the edge of space. They went to about 180,000 feet, not to the edge of space. I apologize, but they got up to where the atmosphere was thin. 
and they sort of temporarily lost control of the vehicle and there were uh, there, there were uh, disagreements inside of the pilot corps as to how they should or should not have been flying the vehicle and there was a tension there and you know when when through my reporting i found out about this and and, and sort of pressed the company they you know i eventually i eventually figured out sort of what happened but there was a deep reluctance to talk about it and and one of the one of the you sort of hear this from flight test professionals all the time which are which is that only through sort of real sort of candid open discussion do you get to the bottom of these problems and sitting on problems and pretending like problems don't exist is is really kind of the sure way to to you know you when you go back and you look at what leads up to accidents, it is often a reluctance to to squarely sort of look problems in the face. So, so you had that episode, right? And then, and that was involving this the this crew, uh, the the two pilots who were flying it that day were Dave Mackay and Mike Masucci. Um, both of them extraordinarily talented pilots, but you know just just the facts. Those two were flying in in July of eighteen, and then in February of nineteen, this was their second space flight, and this one went up. And there was an oversight on the maintenance uh, side of things. And as the vehicle was going up, the air, the essentially the, uh, the, 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 the someone, someone in the maintenance crew didn't know that they papered over, they covered a vent hole. And therefore, the, the flight surface couldn't sufficiently vent and it popped the seal. And so this is February of 19, right? The ship comes down. There's, again... Thumbs up, you know, high fives everywhere, you know, big, big day. They, they got their first, they, they put a, um, a Beth Moses, uh, who was an engineer. She went to space. It was her first of, of uh, this is now she's made, I made two trips. Um, but come to find out, you know, there had been this disbond and the, they did not fly again for, for two years. And when I reported on this and found out about this and found out that their vice president of safety had, had, had resigned his safety position as a as a result of his disagreements with how the company was treating the episode. Yeah, it painted a really disturbing safety culture and, and, and a, a disturbing portrait of a, a, a disturbing a portrait of a very disturbing safety culture. And so, um, so I think you you sort of you you watch you see those episodes leading up to the July um, uh, to this this flight that was back in July with Branson and. It, it begs the question of who inside the company is is now left that is ready to speak truth to powers, ready to sort of you know hold others accountable for for mistakes, and 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 is ready to embrace the fact that, like I said, and this is this is really the takeaway that they are a flight test organization still, and that um, you know the the absence of an open and and you know kind of revealing post-flight discussion as to what went right and what went wrong is, um, you know, is, is something that, that causes both insiders and outsiders who know the company uh, some consternation at this point. Mm -hmm. And, and these things are coming to light through your reporting through, through the FAA action last week. I mean, is there a concern that people will not want to fly on this, that, that this will not allow Virgin Galactic to be that luxury operator. I mean, is there a legitimate concern that they could lose customers over this? Um, Unfortunately, I don't think that I'm the right person. I mean, I think that's a that's a great question for one of the customers and or for the company. Um, But uh, yeah, I mean, I don't I don't 
I think th- those are those are questions that need to be asked. I, I don't know that anyone has has provided a sort of a compelling answer. Um, you know, they they did lose some customers after the 2014 accident. Um, the company made it a, a made a sort of a concerted effort to retain the existing customers. I think at one point they had a slightly over 700 reservations, and and they have about 600 reservations. At, you know, that's that's the number that that. Uh, it's the number you hear most often is that they have just over 600. So, um, but they've recently, you know, announced they were going to start taking reservations again at $450,000 a seat up from the $250,000 that they were charging previously. Um, you know, I think the company is, is they are, they are, they are preparing, uh, to go down for eight months of work, um, uh, starting in October, but they are, have also announced that they are planning one more flight uh, with three members of the Italian Air Force before they go down for eight months of work, which if you're going to go down for eight months of work, uh, it seems like it would be somewhat urgent. And, you know, trying to squeeze in that last flight with the Italians, um, they're, they're, you know, I think that there are, I would love to sort of know how one goes about prioritizing that Italian flight over the eight months of of, of you know perceived uh, uh, urgent repair or work attention maintenance that uh, they're preparing to do. So again, I mean they their ambitions of of flying regular commercial um, service to the edge of space is is a noble one. And look, I spent I've spent now seven years kind of reporting about this company because I think that what they're doing is inherently fascinating and and um, and is and is and is ambitious and is inspiring and in all of that. Um, and it, you know, in some ways reporting on the company kind of changed me. Uh, I spent so much time out there with people who were thinking about things much bigger than themselves. And I think that, and and what always interested me most though, was, was how they were working through this flight test component of the program. And now that you see the folks who are more on the business side, having an influence in flight test decisions, that I think is where you, that's that's where the hairs in the back of your neck start to stand up because you wonder to what extent they are having influence, uh, sort of coming in from the business and commercial side on on those realities of those supersonic risks of flight test. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Schmidl is a writer for the New Yorker. His most recent book is Test Gods: Virgin Galactic and the Making of a Modern Astronaut. Uh, Nick, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. It's been fun. Still to come, documenting the next big story in space tourism. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute here on WMFE, America's Space Station. Support for 90.7 News comes from Kennedy Space Center Visitor Complex. Now open and offering guests a chance to explore the wonders of the universe and see where space exploration is heading. Guests can experience the park by walking in the Rocket Garden, standing nose-to-nose with Space Shuttle Atlantis, and witnessing a rocket launch. More information is available at kennedyspacecenter.com. You're listening to Are We There Yet? on WMFE, America's Space Station. I'm Brendan Byrne. A group of private astronauts are set to take to the skies next week. SpaceX's Inspiration4 crew is slated to launch from Kennedy Space Center next Wednesday. The crew of four civilians have been training since earlier this year for the three-day mission, and photographer John Krause has been there snapping photos of their journey. Krause joins us now to talk about his work documenting this mission. John, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me. So, John, you've had the opportunity to train or or to follow along with the training of these Inspiration4 astronauts, and I thought maybe we could start... um, 
by you introducing us to them. Uh, who are these people? What have you learned about them? Absolutely. So there's Jared Isaacman. He's the commander and benefactor of the whole mission. He's the visionary that, that put it together and is enabling it for the other three. Then we have Haley Arsenault, who is a physician's assistant at St. Jude, and she's a childhood cancer survivor. And it was her mission after she, she beat cancer to end up working at St. Jude, where she is now. And they came to her and said, hey, we have a really cool opportunity for you. Would you like to fly to space? And she said, yes. Then we have Dr. Cyan Proctor, who won an entrepreneurial competition to join the, join the mission. She's an artist, a geoscience professor, um, an overall amazing human. And then we have Chris Sombrowski. He's an aerospace engineer, and he won the, the raffle portion of the contest, and he is serving as the mission specialist on Inspiration4. Uh, this crew, along with you, who's documenting their training, have gone to all sorts of different places, uh, Mount Rainier, um, inside fighter jets. Yeah. <laughs> Tell me about yeah. some of the places you've been with this crew and, and what it's been like. You know, it, it, it's cliche, but it's really been, been just crazy. Um, I talk about this a lot lately, but I never thought that my involvement with Inspiration4 would would be anything beyond like, you know, show up, take a couple pictures. Great to see you guys. I'll see you in three weeks. But I really just joined the team right away and started traveling with them to all these cool places. Like you mentioned, we've, we've gone to Mount Rainier where they, they climbed to Camp Mir and a couple other members of the team actually did summit the mountain. Um, they've, they've spent a lot of time at SpaceX's headquarters in Hawthorne. They've done fighter jet training in Bozeman. They did a zero G flight out of, out of Vegas. Um, just so much cool stuff that, you know, I've really gotten to be a part of beyond simply documenting it. I've, I've become friends with these people like I never would have imagined going into this job. And it, it means a lot to me that, you know, they, they've trusted me with this access and they, they trust me to help share their story in a flattering way. Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned this job, but to me, looking in and, and following you along Twitter, this does not seem like a job for you. <laughs> Absolutely. It? Um, it's... Um, it's, it's an experience and opportunity that transcends work. You know, like, like I just said, they, they have become some of my best friends in the past six or seven months. We, we've developed relationships that I'm sure we're, we're all going to maintain for life. You know, I'm sure there'll be a inspiration for one year reunion after they launch or something like that. And I'm sure I'll be there. Um, so, so it definitely goes beyond a job. It, it's really personal to me and it's something I, you know, I, I cherish very deeply. Mm -hmm. I want to talk a bit about your experience in photography, John, um, you know, folks who live here in central Florida along the space coast, I'm sure have heard of you or have seen your work. Um, and I remember meeting you early in my career, uh, when you weren't even old enough to be on NASA property. <laughs> Tell yeah, me a bit. I remember that because it, it really wasn't too long ago. But at the same time, it feels like a while ago with, with how many launches I've covered and all the stuff I've been up to. So how did it start? Tell, tell me how it starts. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So for anyone who hasn't seen my work or is familiar, not familiar with my story, um, when I was 15, I was a freshman in high school and I, you know, didn't really know where I wanted to take my life both personally or professionally. And not even with that in mind, I just randomly bought a camera. I, you know, trying different hobbies and um, just kind of stumbled upon the idea of buying a camera and starting to take pictures. And I really didn't even have the idea of taking pictures of rockets. Um, I don't like to admit this, but I do now, but like space was kind of just something that was always in the background of my childhood. There's a great 
uh, photo of me at age six on a boat with a shuttle launch. And I'm not even looking at the shuttle launch. A lot of people call me for that, but I actually really like it. I think it's, I think it's funny. So I, I thought space was cool, but I didn't really have the context or the medium to get involved until I bought that first camera. And a month after that, there was a SpaceX Falcon 9 launch and I got to the beach as the rocket was launching. That's like how kind of little I cared about the, the prep that goes into covering these launches. And I, I think that specific launch, I actually needed driven by my mom who was leaving work because um, I was 15, I couldn't drive yet on my own. So, you know, long story short, it, it turned from this kind of like very fleeting interest and passive hobby um, into me looking ahead at what launches there were in the next month, the next two months, then I would start planning my shoots. And I just began this journey of photography that has led to me graduating high school, not pursuing a college education and, and really diving straight into photography professionally. Um, I think I'm at 130 something launches photographed in, in only about six and a half years, which really speaks to the, the surgence of the, the commercial space industry. You know, Before players like SpaceX jumped in, we, we weren't seeing launches at the cadence we're seeing now. So, so that, in a sense, has really enabled me to do this because it would, it would be very hard to, you know, make a living doing this if there were like four launches a year or something. But I think last year we had something like 30, give or take a couple, which, which was great. And I mean, you've primarily, you know, photographed launches or spaceflight hardware for, for different commercial companies. Um, I've got to imagine that the human element of, of this assignment, documenting inspiration for, has, has got to be a bit of a... A challenge for you. I mean, how has it been capturing the human side of space exploration? Absolutely. So I'll, I'll speak to it both on a technical level and then like a personal level. So technically, um, photographing humans and stuff like portraits and artificial lighting is is really kind of the last big chunk of the art of photography that I've you know dived into. I've done landscapes, astrophotography, you know, the rockets, which is kind of like a blend of of sports and landscapes with like the motion and whatnot. Um, but I haven't really photographed a lot of people beyond doing, you know, a couple portrait sessions here and there for, for friends or family. So when I got tasked with this opportunity, I wasn't going to say no, of course, but I was a bit concerned, like, how am I going to spend the next six or eight months getting like good images of people? Because again, remember they're not launching till like the end. So it it was just a challenge and it was it was one that i kind of dived into head first and um going in i was i was confident enough in my general capacity of using cameras that i knew i would get you know technically competent images but i was definitely worried about you know like how i would portray them you know a rocket doesn't blink usually i'm not photographing four rockets at a time where you know one of them has their eyes closed or their mouths in a slightly weird position when they're talking so it, it's presented new challenges, but but also on a personal level, and I, and I said this the other day, like I've never become friends with a satellite that's launching to space, but I've become friends with these four people, again, in, in a way that I didn't expect going in. Um, so it's definitely personal for me to see them strap into the top of that rocket and go to orbit for three days. Now, with that said, I have the utmost confidence that, that SpaceX is going to execute and they're going to launch and return safely. But but as we both know, like there is inherent risk to human spaceflight. And this is the first time that that I've become friends with what is being risked. 
So I think it's going to be a long three days for me on the ground. <clears throat> on the ground. Um, I'm sure for them it'll fly by, but it's definitely going to, I think, drag on for me. Mm-hmm. Have you had those conversations with them about about risk and 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 you know your concerns uh, that you have? Um, not too much, I don't think. I think um, those kind of conversations are best best had with their immediate families and, of course, the the trained professionals at SpaceX who are are preparing them. But I'm sure they know it. It it's personal for me. You know, we we've developed a great bond and um, spent a lot of time together. So I'm I'm sure they know I I care a lot. Um, about their safety. That was Inspiration4 photographer John Krause. More of that conversation, including how Krause is training the crew to take their own photos from space, is coming your way next week here on Are We There Yet? Well, that's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed so you don't miss that conversation or any other episodes. You can do that by subscribing on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts, or by visiting wmfe.org slash yet. Are We There Yet? It's a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. The show's intern is Maria Bersino. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening. 